Welcome to the podcast of Grace Crossing Church, where life and faith intersect. A lot going on in our world today, and what, what, are, we to, what are we to make of these headlines, today's headlines? H- how do we navigate unsettling days as followers of Jesus? I've been looking forward to this Sunday for quite a while, and it's been in my heart to um, to look at missions in the Psalms. I fully intended to get into Psalm chapter two, this messianic psalm about about Jesus and that that great, probably the the most famous of Old Testament missions verses, Psalm two eight, where the Father says, "Ask of me, and I will give the nations to you as an inheritance." And and as I was looking at this psalm. I want to say we're staying in Psalm 2 today, but, but as, as I've studied it and as I've been getting into it, it is just, um, it's just blown up in my heart. It's taken on whole new dimensions in light of the times and the seasons that we're living in. I, it's, so, it's so speaking, I think, to the church today. I'm excited about getting into Psalm 2 with you. Uh, Psalm, Psalm 2, just 12 verses, and very interestingly, four three-verse sets. And in these three-verse sets, there are four different speakers. And we're going to take these sets one at a time, all right? And we're going to consider them one at a time. If I was to title this today, very simply, maybe we would call it Psalm 2, a timely global perspective for the people of God. A timely global perspective for the people of God. Let's just bow our hearts in prayer before we get into the word. Father, we thank you for the truth and the power of your word. Lord, I pray that our study today, I pray that it brings clarity. I pray that it brings comfort and confidence to your people. God, I pray that our study today would bring courage for us to move forward as the people of God. We We confess today, Holy Spirit, that you are the ultimate teacher in the room. Holy Spirit, I ask that you unfold this passage in a way that brings strength, hope, and courage to every heart. I ask it in Jesus' name. Can we say amen together? Amen. Amen. Let's look at at verses one through three, because in the first three verses, the nations speak. And the psalmist says, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, here's what the nations are saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The nations are speaking here and the psalmist begins this psalm with two rhetorical questions. Why do the nations rage or conspire? Why do they plan a rebellion? And the second question is, why do the people plot in vain? What's going on here? It's so the, the psalmist is genuinely baffled that people on earth would have the audacity to raise their hearts and minds up against the God of the universe. The psalmist seems genuinely baffled in that, are they really doing this? Who, who do they think they are? They have no reason to rage, and there's definitely no benefit in their rebellion They're rising up against the sovereign God of the universe and his Christ, his anointed one, the scripture says. The Passion Translation calls them literally the power brokers of earth. 
the power brokers. And both then, when this psalm is penned, and today, power brokers conspire. These kings of the earth, they break both commandment and conscience in pursuit of control on earth. They are power hungry, they are grabbers, and they're conspiring against God himself in overthrow and rebellion. And the psalmist is baffled by this. Even today's power brokers, the political power brokers, the media power brokers, the tech power brokers, the economics power brokers, it's happening all over again, isn't it? Has there ever been a time in your lifetime where people have been so quick to cast off God's moral law and his ways and his commands? Has there ever been a time in your life when people were so quick to flaunt rebellion or to boast that they know a better way, they have a better way, they found a better way? And in verse two, the rulers tell us that they band together, they take counsel together as if pooling their resources will give them an edge (laughs) over the God of the universe. It's like, I know I can't beat him by myself, but maybe if a few of us get together, we can pull this thing off. It's it's groupthink insanity by the rulers of the world. No wonder the psalmist is baffled as he pens these first three verses. Can you say Babel? I mean, did we learn anything from Babel (laughs) a few centuries before? In verse three, they say, let us break their, speaking of God and his anointed one, let us break their chains. Let us cast off their shackles. And this is a sad fact that these rulers of the times would see God as a bondage bringer instead of a bondage breaker. Let me ask you, do you remember the days that the day that your chains fell off? <laughs> huh? Remember the day that God set you free, that he broke the chains? Wasn't that a great day in your life when your chains fell off? From bondage bringer to bondage breaker, bondage bringer versus bondage breaker. I guess, I guess it all depends on how you define freedom. Because today and over the course of the last couple hundred years around the world, freedom has been defined by some as the ability to do whatever I want to do, whenever I want to do it without any consequences, answering to nobody. That's one definition of freedom. But how many know that definition of freedom ultimately leads to bondage? Hmm? Biblical freedom, on the other hand, is not the freedom to do what I want to do, but the freedom to, and, and, and the strength of character and conscience to do what I ought to do. In any given situation, the man who is able to do what he ought to do in the moment is the man that is too, truly free, truly in control, exercising self-control. The ability to do what is right in the moment instead of what I desire to do in the moment, that man is truly free and These two definitions of freedom are at odds in our country today. So the nations have spoken here. Once and for all, they say, let's cast off these controlling chains of God and his Christ. God is an anointed one. And and so we look in the next three verses, verses four through six, and God speaks, he responds. And the psalmist says, he who sits in the heavens just laughs. 
He who sits in heavens in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God speaks. What's God's response to this uprising on earth among the leaders of the world? He just laughs. And as I read this, I thought of that great passage, Isaiah chapter 40, where in Isaiah 40, Israel is complaining and they're saying, God, you're not noticing us. You're not paying attention to us. And in Isaiah 40, God says, on the contrary, you're not paying attention to me. You're not listening to me. You're not seeking me. And, and Israel, and, and Isaiah says to the people, people understand to God, the nations are but a drop in the bucket. He says, your God weighs the islands like fine dust. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy. Your God calls each star by name. Do you understand the greatness and the power and the majesty and the sovereignty of your God? He never gets weary. He never gets tired. Young men stumble and fall miserably. But God gives strength to the weary. And for those who wait upon him and seek him and wait upon the Lord, he will renew their strength and you will mount up with wings as eagles. You will run and not be weary. You will walk and not faint. And, 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 and Isaiah is saying to the people of God, this is your God. This is your sovereign great creator. So when the, when the earth's power brokers rise up for a season, God in heaven just laughs. In fact, he sits in throne. He doesn't even get up. <laughs> it doesn't even elicit a response from him. He sits and laughs. He's not pacing heaven. He's not counting angel forces to see if he's got enough, enough to, to counterattack. He, he doesn't even get up. With all that's going on in our world today, I want to say, church, let these truths bring comfort and confidence to you today. This is your God. And this is how he's responding to what's going on on the planet. He is in control. And, and you and I are secure in God's sovereignty. And you and I are protected by providence. Verse four, God in heaven, the scripture says, mocks their madness. And as I read this, I, I thought of an ant farm. Anybody have an ant farm when you were growing up? Yeah, you remember ant farms. Were any of you a devious kid that used to take a magnifying glass and burn ants on the side? No, we won't go there. We won't, okay, but some of you are saying, yeah, that was me. <laughs> uh, ant farms. The ants in this little glass farm, so, so industrious, so determined, so confident, large and in charge in their own little domain. They think they're all that and then some. They think they have authority and yet they're totally under control and in a glass box. They're totally dependent for life, food, water, on something bigger than themselves. I thought of an ant farm. These are the nations before our God. These are the world rulers before our God. And so this is why God in heaven just laughs. And this is important, all right? He laughs at their boasting pride and plans, but his heart breaks over their sin and their brokenness. He laughs at their boasting and plans, but his heart breaks over their sin and suffering. We serve a God that is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come 
to repentance. He doesn't just laugh, but he speaks in the last line. It's just a one-liner from God, full of implication, full of hope and promise. I have installed my king in Zion. That's all he says. To all this uprising in the kings, I have installed my king in Zion, my anointed one. I have installed Jesus. It's his final word, case closed. Concerning this uprising. And Jesus is our hope today, and Jesus still is the hope of the world. And as the world returns to him, they will define life and love in Jesus Christ. And, and as, as the Father says, I have installed my king on Zion, speaking of Jesus, in the next three verses, the Son speaks. Let's read verses 7 through 9. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, the Son speaks, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The son speaks. I will proclaim the Lord's decree, the son says. Literally, I love this. I will reveal the eternal purposes of God. That's what the son says. The father set a plan in motion. I will reveal the eternal purposes purposes of God. Friends, this is why Jesus came in the first place, to reveal the eternal purposes of God. In Luke chapter 4, we read the, woman, the story of, the, of Jesus with the woman at the well when the disciples get back from town after they go in for some burgers and fries, and Jesus is in this conversation, and, and they're saying, you know, Jesus, you want something to eat? And he says, I, I'm good. Who fed Matthew? I didn't give him anything. John? No, I didn't give him anything. And Jesus said, guys, understand this. My food, what really sustains and satisfies me, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That's you and I too. Our food, our meat. Remember Claire and those old Wendy's commercials? Where's the beef? Where's the beef? Here's the beef. My meat, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. In verse 7, the, the roles of the father and son are revealed. And then we have this promise. God says, ask of me, and I will give the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possession. And, and, and I, as I read this, ask of me, I wonder, just when did the son ask the father for the nations? I mean, evidently, somewhere in history, prehistory, pre-creation, Jesus must have asked the Father for the nations because the Father sets a plan in motion throughout Scripture to give the nations to the Son. The plan of God for the nations is announced in Genesis chapter 3 where there's the prophecy about the cross and Satan's defeat. The plan is launched in Genesis 12 when God chooses a man named Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing. And through you, all the peoples of the world are going to be, going to be blessed. The plan uh, reaches a triumphant uh, a triumph at the cross when Jesus, hanging on the cross, said, It is finished. Tell Telestai, paid in full. I've taken it all on myself. And the plan, I love this, is consummated. Revelation eleven fifteen tells us this. The promised inheritance of nations. Re Revelation eleven 
15 tells us the seventh angel says with a loud voice, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever and ever and ever. And until that day, you and I need to be asking, Over 7,000 people groups on the planet today where there's no church on their soil and their language. We need to be asking for the nations, literally the ethne, the ethnicities of the world. You and I need to be asking for the nations, that the nations would be our inheritance, the ends of the earth, our possession. Now, Becky and I have just returned from the ends of the earth. It wasn't a missions excursion. It was actually a vacation. We just returned from the ends of the earth called Hawaii. Two weeks. It's been 35 years since we've been there. And uh, we, we spent two weeks in Hawaii. And I don't know if you know this, but Hawaii is, is literally the ends of the earth. Hawaii is exactly halfway around the globe from Israel. H Hawaii is the most isolated place on the planet. It's 2,500 miles from any continent. The ends of the earth. And along with a lot of rest and a lot of fun, on the Big Island, we visited a grave there, the grave of Henry Opukahaya. Henry, a given name, Opukahaya, his Hawaiian name. He was a Hawaii's first Christian convert. He was born in 1790, and his grave sits next to a, an old, old church in the town where he was raised that looks out over um, Keala Kakua Bay. Anybody remember that little song? I'm going to go back to my little grass shack in Keala Kakua, Hawaii. Is that only me? Elementary school? I'm not going to sing it for you today. Don't worry. Henry grew up under the kupu system in Hawaii, which was a good plan of the Hawaiian people to steward the land, but it was filled with demonic, fear-based worship of the gods, false gods, including human sacrifice. This was Hawaii in the late 1700s and early 1800s, and at age 10 in a tribal conflict, Henry loses both parents, and as he's running from the conflict, carrying his little brother on his back, and a spear flies, and it kills his brother as he runs through the forest. Henry's captured, and he's raised in the home of the man who killed his dad. Several years later, an uncle who happens to be a kahuna, and yeah, that is a word, a big kahuna, all right? Yeah, a kahuna or a spiritual leader uh, hears that, that Opakaya is alive and he ransoms him. And he begins to train him to be the next high priest of their tribe, which would also include human sacrifice. One day, a ship comes into the bay, Kealakakua Bay, and Opakaya swims out to the ship with a friend, this ship is called the Triumph and is captained by a Christian. And this Christian captain invites Henry, Henry O, to travel with him. The uncle initially says, no, now please understand, since the beginning of time, the name of Jesus had never been heard in the Hawaiian Islands. His uncle says no, but over some dickering relents and exchanges Henry for a pig. And Henry 
gets on the boat and they sail to Alaska and then on to China and then on to America. And on, on, on board, ironically, there's a Yale Divinity student taking a break. And this man studying for the ministry, Russell Hubbard, he begins to use the Bible to teach Henry English. And Henry's eyes began to open to the truth of God. And, uh, and, and, and as they get to New Haven, Connecticut, Henry actually takes a job at Yale. And one day he's found weeping on the steps of one of the dorm rooms. And a man says, why are you weeping? He says, I'm weeping because no one gives me learning. I want to learn. No one gives me learning. Ironically, the man, Edwin Delight, happens to be the cousin to the president of Yale. And a situation has worked out. And Henry, as he learns English, becomes a student. And, and um, and uh, um, he, he's, he's adopted into this man's home. He experiences true family life. He hears the prayers around the table at dinner. And God is working in Henry's. And, and at Yale, he's befriended by a guy named Samuel Mills. And if that's a, a, a familiar name to you, Henry Mills is considered the, the father of Protestant missions in America. He's a, he will go on to become a great missionary. And through, through these interactions with followers of Jesus, Henry becomes the first known Hawaiian convert. He learns Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. He begins to translate the Bible. Putting the sounds of his native language into writing because it had never been done before. And Mills, the missionary, says to Henry, what do you think, Henry? What if you and I take Christ back to your people? Ask of me, God says, and I'll give the nations and your inheritance. What if we take Christ back to your people? And Henry gets excited because since the beginning of time, until now, the 1800s, nobody had ever considered or asked God for Hawaii except for Jesus. And Henry would say of his own people, they know not heaven, they know not Jesus. They only know wood, rock, and hay. And many nights he would weep deep into the night for his countrymen, asking God for his nation asking God for the ends of the earth. A school was created as people got excited about the potential of this mission for Henry and others, and different people from different tribes from around the world were gathered together in the first ever foreign mission school. And Henry O. and Samuel Mills were chosen to be team leaders to take the first team ever into Hawaii in missions. Then February of 1818, Henry contacts typhoid fever and on 17th of February at age 26, he passes away. He's buried in Connecticut. Everyone's in shock. They were ready to send him to the never reached in an answer to his prayer. They, they say in his sickness that Henry wept for Hawaii and he died asking God for the islands. Then suddenly in a shipwreck, Samuel Mills also dies. And suddenly the two team leaders are in heaven. And, and what's going to happen? But I remind you that Jesus has already asked for the nations and the ends of the earth for his inheritance. And Edwin Dwight, the man who found him weeping on the steps, um, begins to print Henry's, Henry's memoirs. He got a hold of his journal. And it stirs in others 
a desire to go in Henry in, 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 in Henry's place. And six months after his death, a, a group forms, a family with five people and fifteen with five kids and fifteen single people come together and say, "God's called us to go to Hawaii." And they begin to study together. They begin to pray together. And they sought God together. And they prepared together. But there was a, there was a snag. None of them were allowed to be sent unless they were married. And they got singles everywhere. So, as they studied and prayed and prepared, Guy would look over this young lady and say, hey, I'm called. You're called. What do you think? And by the time they left, they were all married. Married for the sake of mission. And for a honeymoon, they got a 164-night cruise to the Hawaiian Islands. How would you like that? How would you like sharing your honeymoon for 164 nights with 20 of your closest friends on a 90-foot boat? But that's the story. Meanwhile, back in Hawaii, I need to move quickly through this, a kahuna, a spiritual leader, I don't know how God does this, he gives a prophecy to the kings of Hawaii because things have happened in the land that have caused people to doubt the, the, the kaha system that had been put in place. And this prophecy is simply this, the next religion will come in a black box in a language that we don't understand. And on April 12th, 1820, missionaries first stepped on the Hawaiian Islands carrying a black box with a Bible inside. Ask of me. I'll give the nations as your inheritance. And God's spirit begins to move and Jesus and the missionaries are given the nation. The ends of the earth begin to come to Christ. So we've seen the plan of the Father. He says, I've installed my king on Zion. We've seen the passion of the Son. I will reveal the eternal purposes of God. And now we see the persistence of the Spirit of these last three verses. The Spirit speaks. This sounds like something the Spirit would say. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Isn't this the role of the Holy Spirit in our world? Is this the, 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 the role of the Holy Spirit today? He's still convincing people. He's still convicting. He's still calling. He's still pursuing. He's still pleading. This is what the Holy Spirit is doing today. And in verse 10, the Spirit says, wake up, be smart. Give up your foolish pursuits for power. Kiss the Son, verse 12. Literally, come under the authority of the Son of God, Jesus or your way and your choices will lead to destruction. But blessed are those who take refuge. Blessed are those who hide themselves in God. Friends, how is the Spirit of God accomplishing his work of wooing on planet Earth today? He's doing it through you and me. He's doing it through his church. That's how the Spirit of God moves and operates on planet earth today. He's doing it through us. 
in prayer, we challenge the powers. We ask for nations. We go to the ends of the earth as the people of God. And that's what happened in Henry O's story. And the people that took up the challenge Ask of me and I'll give the nations as your inheritance, the end of the earth, for your possessions back to Hawaii. One of the, con- one of the converts was a chiefess named Kapiolani. And she became a devout follower of Jesus and she was deeply disturbed by the worship of the volcano goddess by some of the islanders. We stood at the precipice of the great volcanoes just a few weeks ago on Hawaii. And, and she decides to walk from Kona to the erupting volcano to declare Jesus as Lord. I drove it. It took two hours to drive. She walked it. And along the way, everybody's saying, don't do this. She's going to snatch you into the fire. You will be devoured. But, but this chief this, this just said this, Jehovah is my God. If she snatches me, worship her. But if not, you must worship Jesus. There's a famous painting in Hawaii of the scene of this, of this queen, this, this chief is standing on the preface of the volcano, shouting at the God, confronting and challenging the spirits. And she prevails and nothing happens to her. And the people are amazed. And she, they realize that the power of God, her God is greater than the power of the volcano. Volcano goddess. And the stronghold is broken and the islands turn to Jesus. And a few miles away in Hilo, the missionaries plant a church called Haile Church. (laughs) In three years, 12,000 are saved. Ask of me. In three years, 12,000 are saved. And catch this, (laughs) the missionaries baptized 1,709 people in one day. I don't even know how you do that. Over 1,700 people in one day. And by 1850, Hawaii is 80% followers of Jesus. The queen understood Psalm 2. Secure in God's sovereignty, boldly confronting the powers of her day. And because of that, the islands began to experience the verse 12, blessed are all those who take refuge in me. So friends, how is the spirit of God accomplishing his work today? He does it through you and I. He does it through the church. I personally believe that the Lord of the harvest, hear me when I say this, I believe the Lord of the harvest has an ends of the earth assignment for each each and every one of us. It doesn't mean that we all go there, but it all means that we have a role to play in the ends of the earth in gathering of tribes and tongues for Jesus. It, It might be personally, adopting a nation and saying, you know what, God, this nation is on my heart. It's, it's ends of the earth stuff and I'm gonna pray for this nation every day. It might be doing a little bit of homework and saying, what, what tribes in this part of the world that I have a burden for, what tribes do not yet have a church on their soil and in their language where the people in the tribe couldn't discover Jesus even if they wanted to. And you, and you adopt a tribe, why not? Say, I'm owning this one until the church is planted on the soil of this tribe. Until Jesus comes again, I'm in. An ends of the earth assignment might be to, to um, become a stakeholder with a missionary and to say, I, I, I'm all in. 
I'm gonna have a personal vital involvement with this missionary, with their family. I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna support, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna take on a missionary as ends of the earth, and to say, Jesus, what is my ends of the earth assignment? Because in that assignment, there's great joy. In that assignment, there's great fulfillment. In that assignment is partnering with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this ends of the earth gathering until Jesus comes again. As we do, we will live out the key role that God has for us. The key role in this persistence of the Spirit of God that we just read about, this key role in this passion of the Son that we just read about, this key role in the plan of the Father that we just read about. Psalm 2. God, our God, is sovereign. Psalm 2, our God is in control. His plan is being executed and his purposes are being fulfilled right now. And you and I get to play a role as we ask for the nations as an inheritance and the ends of the earth as our possession. So, so I'm thinking, you know, Lord, in light of Psalm 2, what's going on in our world? Spirit of God, what are you saying to the church today? What, what are you saying to the church today? And, and this phrase, you've seen it, before. But this phrase popped into my mind. All right, you ready? Keep calm and carry on. Keep calm because your God is in control and sovereign over the universe and the details of your life. So keep calm. Why be filled with anxiety? You're secure to sovereignty and protected by his providence. Keep calm and carry on because we have work yet to do there's a global mission for us to finish before Jesus returns. Keep calm and carry on. Keep calm because our God has the whole world in his hands. But carry on because our God has put the whole world in our hands to finish the work before he comes. Keep calm, church and carry on. No matter how this world shakes, rattles, rocks, and rolls, your God's in charge. Your God is sovereign. And he has work for us to do. So keep calm and carry on together as the people of God. That's Psalm 2. That's what's been stirring in me, and I hope it's encouraged you and blessed you and strengthened you and fortified you and brought confidence to your heart today. Let's bow our hearts before the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word. Thank you for its transforming truth. Thank you for the power of your word to bring peace. And God, I pray that the peace of God that passes all human understanding would just settle in the days in which we live. God, let your peace just settle over every heart over every mind through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God, I pray, along with your peace, that you would give us courage. I pray that you would give us courage first to ask, God, what is my ends of the earth assignment? 
in this next season? What nation, tribe, missionary do you want me to adopt, engage, be on the team with God? God, I pray for courage for the assignment. God, I pray for courage and persistence as we join Jesus in asking for the nations as our inheritance. Father, I thank you for Grace Crossing. I thank you for their love and commitment to you. And I pray through this fall that you would work deeply. Lord, work through the Sundays, work through the small groups, work through the women's gatherings and the men's gatherings. Work through the outreaches, work through the teens, work through the kids, God. I pray your blessing upon this church and I thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let me share a blessing, a two-verse blessing with you. This is one of my favorites, Psalm 67, 1 and 2. The scripture says, God, be gracious to us, bless us, and make your face shine upon us. That's good stuff, isn't it? God, be gracious, God, <laughs> God, be gracious to us, bless us, and make your face shine upon us. That, here you go, your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all peoples. God bless you, Grace Crossing. Have a great week in Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Grace Crossing Church, including service times and directions, check us out on the web at www.gracecrossingchurch.net. We hope to see you at one of our upcoming weekend worship gatherings. Have a great day.